How do the best startups create winning cultures? Well, today you're going to hear from an experienced entrepreneur who shares his secret recipe for creating a product culture that will drive growth at your startup. Welcome to the Powder Keg Podcast, the show that plugs you into the massive opportunities in tech hubs beyond Silicon Valley that are exploding with potential. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today I'm feeling a, a little bit of love for Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, I'm feeling a lot of love for Nash Nashville, Tennessee, uh, which is one of the hottest tech hubs between the coasts. This week is 3686 Festival, which is Tennessee's global virtual event celebrating tech and innovation across the state. So today's episode is an awesome interview that we recorded back in August of 2019 with Marcus Cobb, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Jamber, and uh, also one of last year's most talked about speakers at 3686. Cobb is a technologist, product designer, public speaker, successful entrepreneur, just all around a uh, really interesting guy. Marcus is a highly sought after investor, mentor, strategist uh, for numerous organizations, and of course, the CEO and co-founder of Jamber, which is a Nashville-based music technology company that focuses on streamlining the incredibly complicated process of creating a song, sharing it with the world, and ultimately getting paid and getting credit for it, uh, something super relevant right now. And throughout this episode, you're going to hear what Marcus, uh, really how his mind works and how he thinks as an entrepreneur, but also as a strategist and investor as well. Um, you're going to get to hear him discuss his role as th that entrepreneur and his own personal experiences with building an amazing team culture. And in his current role as CEO and product owner, uh, you're going to hear how he leads his team to come up with products that are really going to help his startup, Jamber, grow and scale. Check it out. Uh, Marcus, thank you so much for taking time on a Friday afternoon. Man, happy to, man. Happy to, man. I appreciate it. I always love talking to you. So I am here, bells on, you know, kind of jumping into this beautiful entrepreneurial journey. So here we go. Likewise, my friend. And you have been up to a lot right now at Jamber uh, in the last two years. Been following from afar on social media. Uh, and I definitely want to dive into that. But before we do, I always love to kind of go back to the roots. You know, where did you, where did it all begin for you? Uh, where'd you grow up and how did you first get exposed to this thing called entrepreneurship and technology? Yeah, I mean, you touched on, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, which I'm at an age now in my early 40s where I'm really more aware of kind of the circumstances I was born out of that brought me here. All the things I didn't appreciate before. Uh, it's funny, I, <clears throat> I was just, I just tweeted when I first read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, that book really pissed me off. Matter of fact, I I emailed him immediately reading that book because I, I felt it was super uh, kind of we're all a product of of our destiny and our environment, right? And mm -hmm. even even outliers are really lucky uh, in the fact they are because of certain things they can't control. And being an entrepreneur, that that really rubbed me the wrong way. Now, ten years later, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> Is that you know <laughs> super lucky to be here while well, I had choices inside of my circumstances. I didn't have choices outside of those circumstances, right? And um, I'm, I'm pretty thankful for that. El Paso is a very industrious town. Um, it's been in the news lately to, uh, you know, a tragedy we just had there. It really 
brought the nation together, I think, to wrap their arms around El Paso. But El Paso has been a city that's wrapped its arms around its people uh, for as long as I can remember. You still um, have I still have family there, yeah. My, I have family there. Um, I haven't been to El Paso in a while, though, so now it's on my heart. <laughs> I want to go as soon as possible. Uh, but I say that to say, you know, that I think that foundation, uh, even though I grew up in a pretty poor neighborhood, we had a state-of-the-art computer lab. Um, we had bookmobiles, which are like basically ice cream trucks full of books that kind of yeah. ride around the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> I was a patron of the bookmobile for sure. Uh, were you really? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I literally just found old Encyclopedia Brown books that I used to love as a kid. You know, That's awesome. Um, and then uh, I've <clears throat> told the story many times. My grandmothers were, you know, they would celebrate everything I would do, no matter how small it was. Just putting like an electric motor to a nine volt battery would wow them. Right. And uh, how would they celebrate it? Usually, like, just a lot of it was, you know, praises and applauds and pats on the back. You know, I think a lot of, I think, I think destiny flirts with all of us when we're kids in a certain way. Absolutely. And I believe that positive reinforcement really helps the sparks of destiny uh, blaze into flames. Um, positive reinforcement goes a long way. And my grandmothers were all about that. Um, there was no, I could do no wrong in their eyes. Not, I mean, except talking back, I'd get in trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but as far as uh, my, the curiosity that consumed me, uh, it was cool. Um, just as a quick anecdote, I actually got in trouble one time because <clears throat> from the bookmobile in the library, I learned how to build, or I thought I learned how to build a, uh, a ruby laser. And all I needed to do was find a synthetic ruby, which was really hard to do when you're 11. And right. <laughs> you didn't know any synthetic ruby dealers when you were 11. <laughs> they weren't in the phone book. But what I did find in the phone book is, for those of us who know what a phone book is, uh, was a gas supplier, so I could buy neon gas. And wow, I remember calling up and uh, this gentleman who answered the phone was like, "Son, do you know neon gas can kill you?" And I was like, "Goodbye, thank you." I hung up the phone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you know fast forward i had a pretty uh definitely at times a rough childhood that um i don't like to shed a lot of light on but just acknowledge that it was there and um were there any any particular circumstances that you feel like really helped the fact that you went through those experiences helped you later in your career yeah you know i, I um i was a my, my stepfather was an abusive, kind of angry guy, just not a good guy, not a good person at all. And if you've ever been in uh, an abusive relationship when you're a kid, especially, you get some baggage out of it, but you also get some superpowers out of it if you're, yeah. if you're lucky enough to, to survive it. You know, the baggage is you might be a little more codependent, you might be a little less trusting, those kind of things. But some of the superpowers is that, uh, you know, you, you learn how to take a hit and you learn how to get back up. And you, you learn how to go into an environment that wouldn't normally be full of fear, but find this uh, bubble of hope. You find ways to escape even in toxic places. And those tools can become really powerful for an entrepreneur, especially uh, of uh, kind of painting your own reality. I would prefer not to have gone through that. Um, sure. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to glorify it in any way whatsoever. Uh, I don't think it was a necessary ingredient, but I do think that, uh, you know, I am fortunate that, I'm a little stronger today. I really don't. Uh, I'm not afraid of much, <laughs> you know, um, except maybe my kids growing up too fast. Um, uh, so with that in mind, those 
elements really made me escape into school more and escape into books more. And uh, I played that. Were there any books in particular that um, for you were very inspiring? And I I imagine to be able to turn that kind of experience into an opportunity and and to your point, would never wish that experience on anyone in the world uh, either. But to be able to to turn that into opportunity is, is pretty amazing and a superpower in and of itself. Yeah, I would, you know, um, definitely Encyclopedia Brown books. I thought I kind of was Encyclopedia Brown, like this kid. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, this wit beyond uh, his age, uh, beyond his years. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember Calvin and Hobbes books. Of, of course. I, I, there was something about, you know, as much as Hobbes was an, was an imaginary friend and toy, he came alive in the books in a way that um, I, I fantasized about too, right? And I was like, I, that's, that's my friend, <laughs> you know, and the adventures they would go on together. Uh, but really, any book that I could comprehend that would satisfy certain curiosity. Uh, I got really big in aerodynamics as a kid. Um, I remember I wrote a bunch of, I sent a bunch of designs for spacecrafts to NASA when I was young. And What, uh, what was it about aerodynamics? I mean, a lot of kids are just like into G.I. Joe or they're into, <laughs> you know, a uh, little more normal skateboarding. But you're like, I was into aerodynamics. <laughs> what was it about that that really intrigued you? I've never, I've never been asked that question before. When you ask me, I, my, I think subconsciously it was wanting to fly, you know, um, mm-hmm. wanting to fly away. And that there was a science to that. There was a science to, and science was always fair. I, so I think subconsciously it makes you feel pretty powerful, like to embrace the sorcery of science and to find a way to understand it and manipulate it. Um, to achieve these really amazing results. So as a kid, when I, you know, learned about airfoils and um, uh, the the dynamics of uh, power and thrust, that was a promise that with the right tools I could fly. And I even tried to build an airplane once with my brother as a a test pilot, but we were low on budget (laughs) because we were 12. So our airplane was actually a shopping cart with a two by four across the top of it. But uh, that's awesome. We did have uh, an ejection seat made out of a stroller and walkie-talkies just in case he happened to fly. Uh, (laughs) Always be prepared. Always be prepared. You never know. We're optimistic kids. (laughs) I I like the optimism goes a long way. And again, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's actually uh, also part of the the Mexican culture that is uh, prevalent in El Paso is that there's, everything is a community project. Mm. You know, um, it's, it's not just one person. There were, probably eight to 10 other kids helping me build this airplane. And um, nobody's afraid of work. Hard work is just in our blood. You know? So uh, that were, you the, were you the Tom Sawyer kid that was? I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I was. You know, yeah. you know, I was just so thankful looking back. So that backdrop really, um, high school years were, were, were tough, but I, I think a lot of that was there. And the consistent the one thing that was a little more pliable was computer science, right? Yeah. I didn't, I could, I could get, if I could just get to a computer, I could do something and uh, uh, explore some new magic. Um, and so there was a, an old school graphic language called Apple logo. that was mm. uh, this little turtle on the screen and you could basically send signals to this turtle, like go left, go right, you know, and the turtle, which now looking back was like poop, but it's basically a line that followed the turtle and uh, you could draw anything. Right. So those, those were kind of my first programs. I think I remember that. 
I think I remember. I didn't have the attention span for it, but (laughs) I think I remember that. Oh, wait, you're talking way back. I was so, I I, I literally built a choose your own adventure book game uh, using Apple logo. That's so cool. Charged my kid, my my friends, 25 cents and blow pops to play it. And uh, um, I carried that floppy disk around with me for like three years, just continuing. Like when the disk was actually floppy? Literally a floppy disk. I think it was like 512K, which was massive at the time. I'm showing my (laughs) real. No, I, I remember that. I was always using old. Uh, computer gear and hacking yeah. stuff together right it's like there was this there's a release in it you tinker and then lights come on and you know there's something really rewarding it's uh, magic when the lights come on it's magic exactly it is and um i had a computer science teacher my first formal setting was in my senior year of high school and uh he really again just kind of celebrated saw how quickly i was picking up visual basic at the time and uh, let me and my buddy teach class halfway through the year um, as a way to, uh, he came up to us, he's like, hey guys, look, uh, you're picking this up really quickly. You're skipping ahead in, in the chapters. Uh, there's not much more I can teach you except to teach you guys how to teach yourselves. And um, to do that, you guys are going to teach class for the rest of the school year. I already cleared it with the dean. It's a done deal. Um, wow. uh, <clears throat> he doesn't know. I've tried to find a couple of times that that was actually became a turning point in my life. Yeah. How did that so, feel? I joke all the time when I tell the story to kids that I was I was pretty short sighted when I when I got that uh, information uh, because there was this really really pretty girl in my class. Her name was Misty, and I got in trouble all the time for hanging out at Misty's desk and talking to her. You know, and then my first thought was now I can talk to Misty as much as I want to and not get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my teenage mind. That was my first uh, thought there, uh, but it made the school paper, and I, was, I went to a a great school in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, called Cimarron Memorial at the time. And um, it made the school paper. And again, the school itself had a culture of really setting kids free. It was mostly a wealthy school, upper middle class and upper upper class, but there were a few of us that were lower class. Um, and uh, it didn't matter. The school was just kind of a melting pot and our friends were the same way. One of the people who got a hold of that um, uh, kind of news article, if you will, was a woman by the name of Charmaine Yank, <clears throat> who has since passed, but her daughter went to the same school I did. We were all kind of in the same friend group. And Charmaine was the first entrepreneur I ever met in my life. Oh, wow. Uh, what, how old were you? I was 19, actually, at the time. So I was 19, and I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. I definitely wasn't even sure what I was going to do for work. At this time, you know, IS jobs weren't huge, at least in my, in my purview. That, that wasn't really a career. Um, and this woman who, to tell you about herself, was so amazing that one day she surprised all of us with an Easter egg hunt and, and all the eggs had IOUs. Um, as kids, we thought we we're just, you know, entertaining this crazy old lady before we could eat. <laughs> but in fact, um, she had everything from like $500 for your uh, college books to your class ring paid for in her backyard. That's the kind of heart she had. Um, she gave away a lot of money that day to kids who needed it and kids who didn't need it because she just felt compelled to do so. And uh, uh, after that, <clears throat> she came up to me. She's like, young man, I heard you do computers. I saw your name in the school paper. You're a genius. I'm like, uh, yes, ma'am. Thank you. I appreciate it so much because I'm going to hire you. Uh, you start tomorrow. I'll pay you X dollars. Uh, at the time, it was 20 bucks an hour. Wow. Uh, so that That's woman, and she, it was huge, man. I mean, I was living in Section 8 housing and uh, near projects at the time, right? And so uh, this woman was making me this offer and what was a mansion at the time. And so you talk about the tale of two cities, 
um, that she changed my life because what was so magical about her is even though I had this really turbulent background, she was everything I thought I wasn't. Um, she was, uh, you know, very Hollywood in a way, tall, blonde, you know, big blonde hair everywhere and gold bangle bracelets everywhere in her red sports car and, you know, those for things. But in reality, her background was actually worse than mine. And one of the most amazing things she did for me was attack what I call the poverty mentality and the sense of the Cinderella complex of feeling like someone owes you something and uh, wishing and hoping for your fairy godmother to show up, right? Mm. Um, and that's a really, that's actually one of the most dangerous things, I think. Uh, one of the downsides of, of some forms of welfare is that you, you're always waiting to uh, be helped to rescue. Um, she wouldn't tolerate that. Like, I, mom, I was physical. I used to call her mom as a nickname, you know, it's out of respect. But I went through physical abuse. She's like, me, me too. <laughs> Get to work. You know, like, oh, my, feeling, my parents are, are not very nice people. Mine either. Get to work. I don't want to hear it. And all my excuses would fall flat. The only thing, the only language we had was the language of work. And that was a turning point in my life. For, for someone who has that um, Cinderella mentality, and I, I think if most people, if they're honest with themselves, has that somewhere in the back of their mind, maybe, yeah. maybe some more prevalent than others. Um, how, how can they maybe start to quiet that voice or start to replace that voice with a more empowering message? I mean, the one consistent currency of destiny is diligence, which is painstaking effort. Um, no one can take that from you. And when you start seeing the reward of that, you don't want anyone to. I think all of us, when we endure uh, some level of pain, we can't help but romanticize about someone soothing that pain. And I like to say, I think uh, the one voice everyone has is the one scream we all have innately is I have value. And mm. I, I think we all need love. And we all need people to acknowledge that value in us. And sometimes being rescued is a promise, uh, maybe even a false promise that people rescue us because they see our value. And um, the, the downside of that though, is that no one can actually carry your destiny in theirs at the same time. Mm. So while people can meet us where we're at and they can inspire us like, like Charmaine did me and many, many others uh, along my life, that's the difference is that you have rest points, but you can't just lay in someone's lap until, until the storm goes away. Uh, you fill up, you fill up your tank and you, you continue to pursue your destiny. In my opinion, that, that seems to be uh, what I've learned about my life. And even when I read biographies of the many people I study, that seems to be consistent across the board. Yeah, that's, that's great feedback. Well, and it sounds like um, that sort of like coaching and nurturing um, was met with commitment and and follow through on your part um what was your next big breakthrough actually it was a it was kind of a a bit of a white water rapids after that um i got hired to <clears throat> i joined this marketing company that was growing really fast um, they had a falling out with their uh, resident is manager at the time they had over 300 employees a couple of locations and I was just there, so they put me in as kind of an acting director of IT at the age of 19. And the job was relatively easy for me. I loved it. You know, I was just both hardware and software, and I got to learn from other managers how to be a manager at a young age, which was cool. Um, and then I got picked up by Microsoft shortly after that on their 
it's like healthcare innovations team at the time. And both of those were pretty striking uh, breakthroughs for me. And then yeah. it just, just kind of took off from there. Now, not to say, I mean, there were a lot of speed bumps. <laughs> yeah. You take a kid like me and you throw me into corporate America, you're going to have some speed bumps. <laughs> There's going to be some learnings. Do, do you uh, remember a, a particular instance uh, that was particularly challenging to get through or recover from or, or maybe not recover from? Yeah, I just, I just think the norms that we take for granted in, in business and in everything from uh, email etiquette to I one time showed up late for uh, a meeting with Microsoft executives to show off our tech that we built with uh, between Microsoft and WebMD at the time. And this was really breakthrough tech. And I was the lead on it. And I was the youngest person on the team and I was the only person without, a, without an advanced degree. And um, <clears throat> I think a little bit of arrogance might have came with that at the time because mm -hmm. I showed up to this meeting with 90 minutes late with Starbucks in my hands and I had no idea what was wrong with that scenario. Oh, no. <laughs> but I got pulled aside um, and uh, actually fired from that job uh, not too long after that, just for those those reasons. And uh, that was one of the best fires I ever had. It was a wake up call. Unfortunately, Microsoft invited me back years later in different roles. Um, but uh, you know, I it was definitely my character had to catch up with my talents, and I had to learn that invisible language of respect and regard with people by just respecting their time, showing up, being responsive, but it was not an overnight thing by any means. What does that word character mean to you? And, and how can people, whether they're an entrepreneur or um, they're a software developer or they're project manager, how, do, how can they develop character faster? I'm not sure I want to project my definition of character on other people because it's pretty intense. But <laughs> sure, you know, I, I come from a you know Baptist background, kind of a fire brimstone type of character. So it's not yeah. quite that what I what I grew up with. Uh, you know. um, but those, you know, there's there's still some biases there. I think um, one definition I heard for integrity that always stuck with me is that integrity is keeping your word to your own heart. Um, and it's going to take that a little too far from a codependent standpoint, but I, I still lean on that because if you hurt, if you make a promise that you end up um, suffering from a little bit of pain for, you're less likely to, to use your words and your promises uh, so lightly the next time, right? You kind of hold yourself accountable. Um, mm. And I think that's really what that, what that means. Uh, so I think character is really most manifested when your life is bigger than yourself and there's a general healthy regard for other people around you. I mean, I think those ingredients, uh, the more you have a regard for people in a healthy way, uh, your character will kind of find its, will find itself. What were some of the, the benefits that you cultivated uh, from developing some of that character and applying it to your career? Uh, and how did that kind of set you up to what you're doing now as the founder and CEO of Jamber? Well, on one hand, I've had some really amazing mentors and managers along the way. Um, I grew up in an era, uh, while I'm learning this computer science stuff, there are these really big scandals on the screen like uh, Enron at the time, right? And sure. It fascinated me that 30 people in a boardroom, I don't know what the exact number was, but you know, 30 people in a boardroom could create such a vacuum um, and make so much wealth evaporate that... Mm would leave a crater, literally a black hole uh, in the economy of people's lives. And that felt like an injustice to me. And it felt like it was really heartbreaking at the time 
having had the contrast of knowing someone like Charmaine as an entrepreneur and seeing these people who were so nonchalant, uh, at least appeared that way on TV about yeah. the damage that we're causing. And they were so afraid of, you know, being held accountable themselves that they, the lie just went on and went on and went on. And I think <clears throat> a lot of people fake it until they make it, you know, especially when you talk to startup founders, you see that across the board. <laughs> uh, but I think it's something different to be reckless with billions and billions of dollars, people's uh, people's uh, thing. So you make a decision uh, as a, as a person Where's your line of, uh, you know, where's your line of integrity? Um, when does it go from faking it to you make it until you're suddenly a, a Katie Holmes, a Theranos? You know, um, what, how do you play your cards, uh, so to speak? I think we have to make that decision ourselves, especially as entrepreneurs, because it's, there's no, it's it's impossible to, I'm going to go on the limb here and say, I think it's impossible to have a startup and play by all the rules. I think that the game is rigged um, and it's leveraged going into the game. I mean, even venture capital is leveraged, right? Um, sure. So I think it's impossible to play by every single rule. And some of those rules, if you even look at, people will put in rules to, to maintain their power. Just look at what's happening with Airbnb. Um, in different cities and, and what Uber went through in its initial growth, uh, dealing with taxi medallions across different markets. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just finding that balance and and being aware of, are you really bringing, you know, having a, being accountable to people around you? I mean, I, I really think that um, she, Katie Holmes, thought that she was bringing, saving the world in her own mind and convince herself that it was everything she was doing was worth it. But when you stop heeding all the advice and warnings around you, I think you've gone too far. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it seems like that momentum that you built uh, through your career, while maybe there were setbacks along the way, you get fired from Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> you picked yourself back up and threw yourself back in the ring and said, okay, I'm going to learn from that. And I'm going to take that lesson and move forward. Yeah, very much so. I think taking responsibility is also empowering yourself to fix it. You know, if it's my fault, then I can fix it. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Well, and, and I, I know it's been a, a couple years since I've heard your full pitch on, yeah. uh, on Jamber, but I've, I've certainly read the headlines as you've raised some money uh, more recently and mm. uh, love what you're building. Such a cool product. Uh, how did you come up with it? We're, we're geniuses. That's actually what it is. We're just, you know, uh, my fairy godmother flew in through the window. It's like, Marcus, you've worked so hard. Here it is now. Here is your billion dollar plan. <laughs> and she rolled it out for me. And I just, you know, we just ran with that. That's Can you lucky. send her my way? <laughs> I'm going to text her right now. Let her know. Hey, go see Matt. Thanks, um, man. A lot of falling forward, man. Actually, it's, 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 I'll say this again. It's also the tell two cities on one hand. Jamber is the epitome of what my dream job would be as an entrepreneur. Even though I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and I've, I've had some success uh, financially and, and in other ways with that, I never really felt like I arrived by any means. Um, I just got better at making money. If you're doing it for as long as I have and you're not making money and you can't get profitable, you should probably do something else. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, when I would... And I, I imagine other entrepreneurs feel this way too. When I would read, you know, Michael Dell's book or uh, Howard Schultz from Starbucks, his, his book, Pour Your Heart Into It, or 
um, stories about Edison or Bill Gates, especially. I mean, one of my favorite stories of all time is the story of Bill Gates and uh, Paul Allen sort of Microsoft. Yeah. Or watching the social network movie about Facebook, right? You, uh, they walk into these moments where they're like these, <clears throat> there's a Greek word called Kairos. Mm. And uh, Kairos is basically this uh, synthesis of everything being right. The timing's right, the people are right, the environment's right, and something explosive or amazing happens. And you kind of fantasize about that as an entrepreneur, or at least I do. And damn if I don't feel like that's my moment right now. I mean, uh, it's kind of amazing to jammers everything that as a star, as an entrepreneur, I would want. It's, it's, Needed. It's, it's a bit of a blue ocean. If you ever read blue ocean stra- strategies, there's not a lot of people doing what we're doing. Absolutely. Uh, the timing is perfect because streaming is is forcing an industry to change that has not been able to change itself in over a hundred years, and now it's being forced to really rapidly. Uh, so I don't think that any one company can bring about disruption. I think we write it, and uh, <clears throat> because disruption is there's also there's, it's, it's chaos theories, right? There's so many things you can't control, um, uh, but. Here, Jamber is at the uh, helm of what I think we have an opportunity to usher in this renaissance of the arts by removing uh, a lot of the red tape that capitalism has put in the place of creativity. Um, and all the first iteration of that is getting music uh, creators, songwriters paid faster. And it's that simple use case is incredibly, incredibly difficult and one of the most complex businesses I've ever been in, which is with the Tell Two Cities part. So even though I found my dream opportunity, in many ways, this mountain is bigger than any mountain I've ever climbed before. And um, it's taking everything I've learned in 20 plus years about software design, team management. I've done a lot of FinTech platforms. It's taken everything. And even what I came in here with is not enough, right? I'm, I'm learning every single day uh, of how to stay on the surfboard, so to speak. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I'm, I'm ecstatic, man. I really am. That's great to hear, man. How did it all start with Jamber? Was it uh, something that you saw, a problem that you saw? Was it a, uh, hearing someone talk about the problem? Yeah, kind of the bullet points. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where in some ways it started, you know, when, my, when I um, was a toddler in my grandmother's house and I wanted to learn how to play piano and I wrote all the letters on the piano keys in permanent marker and wrote them wrong. <laughs> you know, I just started from A, B, C, D and went up the keyboard and that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> uh, so I think that, you know, I've always been drawn to music, but I never saw how music and technology would come together. I didn't want to design instruments or anything like that. That wasn't, that wasn't attractive to me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, now the bullet points are, is really serendipitous. Part of the, so I sold a software company, um, my first solo exit. Um, There's kind of this season of, of extraordinary success. I, I was part of an early team at Tickets Now, and uh, that CEO, Mike Domek, sold that company for $270 million to uh, Ticketmaster. And being part of that founding team, we had a lot of swag coming out of that because we knew we built something amazing and great really, really quickly. Um, so a lot of us wanted to try to reproduce that success. I went on and started another software company and I sold that. But my first little exit without that same team around me was a bit depressing. I realized I didn't care as much about the monetary benefits of building a company. Um, 
I like to build and create great places to work. So I went into a bit of a depression, uh, honestly. Um, mm. When you, I think for me, and I, I've heard, I've talked to other entrepreneurs who have felt this way, um, you become a bit of a ronin when you exit out. And uh, you, it took me two years uh, to find the light at the end of the tunnel and a purpose mm. up again. And I went to a TEDx Midwest in Chicago. Um, and for some reason, just the messages at that TEDx really resonated with me. Um, I had some healthy cleansing tears, uh, just about, okay, look, we can, what's my new purpose here? And um, <clears throat> I was, and I was still making money. I actually had a consulting company at the time. I was, uh, we were doing really, really well. I just hated my job. I hated everything. <laughs> so fast forward, my buddy's like, well, Mark, you know, what else do you have? Like, what, what else is in your brain? Um, and so we did about two weeks of show and tell uh, with my original co-founder. And he's like, what's that one? I'm like, I don't know. It's kind of like a LinkedIn for music industry, man. I see this really big opportunity there. And that became Jamber. Um, I saw it because, and everyone gets a bit of a head fake when I say this, but uh, you, you know the story where I became a fashion designer for a little while. Uh, so after I sold my company, uh, the tech company, I was just burned out on tech, right? Burned out. Well, we're talking, yep. you're working 20 hours a day, uh, everything hardware, software, and you just, you just, at some point in time, I think you just burn out, man. Um, I've got a buddy doing the same thing right now who really? started a custom men's menswear business. <laughs> right? Because it's just not tech. It's like yep. you're still building. and. Um, but actually that changed my life realizing that before I was a tech guy and in my circle, I was the tech guy. You want something built, go to Marcus. Right. Um, and matter of fact, when I became a designer, there's a bit of intervention. They all took me to dinner and told me I lost my mind and I was gone, <laughs> you know, and I was ruining our mutual opportunities because I was the tech guy. And now if I'm designing fashion and then lingerie at that, you know, <laughs> women's apparel, I'm not much used to these guys if I'm designing their fashion. So, um, but I just like, you know, I held on to it and uh, it ended up being the yin to the yang, uh, which would lead to Jamber. Um, what, became, and you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, it became, you know, um, I want to give this, I want to be very succinct because um, it's a bit uh, a long story, but essentially I started designing. I didn't, I'm not really a good designer. Uh, I'm a, I realized I've always been a designer. Music, software, now fashion, they're actually all designs. And I loved creating designs that would resonate with people and make them happy or change their lives and have some kind of positive value. And <clears throat> fashion was just a new medium. So in some ways that set me free from this box of just being the tech guy. Um, and we, we got pretty good at it. I, even though I wasn't, I'm not a good seamster still, I mean, I can, I can, I can sew a mean zigzag three-step stitch, <laughs> but uh, um, I'm not, that's not my gift, but I could put together products and design and stories and really resonate with the customer, se customer segment. And in fashion, I found it relatively easy to build a team um, of people that had all these strengths they'd been working on for years, decades, that I could hone um, into a product that was, became Mark Wayne, which was a, the fashion line. Fast forward, we get a phone call one day, from this guy's like, hey, uh, I Googled you. We like your designs. I'm doing a music video for uh, Pitbull. He's this artist maybe you've heard of. Um, look, uh, we're not going to pay you guys, but if you guys want to come down, we need some custom pieces, and we need them in three days. And uh, I'm like, 
wait, I'm sorry, start over again? <laughs> so, uh, like, you know, I'll see what we can do. We hang out the phone. We're like, oh, my God, we need to design for Pitbull. You know, and uh, uh, it's Pitbull and Baby Bash, this music video they had. So sure enough, flew down there, and that opened a lot of doors um, across the music industry for me. And I don't even think Pitbull knows that because I was just a designer yeah, behind the scenes, right? Um, and I was this designer now. And I, I got an opportunity to put together girl band um a guy that was working for sean combs at bad boy records at the time as one of his producers like hey marcus we want to put together a girl band with this kind of formula you love music man you love fashion come help us put together products and i'm like yeah how hard can it be to put together a girl band i'm, I'm down and you, you yeah i can see you you know i see, I see you laughing um it was the hardest thing i've ever done in my life i'm and sure it was so hard man i i, I never get tired of telling the story um yeah, it was just really hard. And that was such a contrast to the success I had in fashion. I was really successful in fashion with no background because I was able to put a team around me, right? And here I am in music in Chicago at the time with 8 million people, and I can't put together a girl band of four girls. Um, and that was infuriating. And I was like, we need a bigger funnel. I need, I need, in the fashion world, I can say I'm looking for, you know, a male model, 5'10", um, who has experience doing suits. And I, I'll get 10 options to work with, right? There was no way to do that in the music industry. And that's where we started. At that time, actually, the music listing board was Craigslist. And I always say, anytime Craigslist is number one at something, uh, there's a market opportunity. Opportunity for disruption, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, fast forward, that was the, that was the impetus for it. I like to say that uh, Jamper was conceived in Chicago, uh, but born in Nashville. Uh, so we had enough traction that we got into the 1871 um, uh, co-working space, which is a massive- uh, Oh, yeah. It's in Chicago, right? I know you're familiar with it. It's a pretty cool space, man. Um, <clears throat> they were a Google Entrepreneur Center at the time, or are, and so was the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. They were the same network. Uh, so Nashville came up to tour 1871 and announced this music tech accelerator they were launching. And uh, Howard Tolman, um, who was CEO of 1871 at the time, was like, Marcus, maybe you should go down to Nashville and check out this music tech thing. I'm like, I have no fucking desire to go to Nashville, man. <laughs> <laughs> I like Chicago. Uh, and it turned out to be a life-changing experience for us going to Nashville. It was the best thing we ever did. Um, matter of fact, I'm still in Nashville part-time. And it's been, that was 2015. And I met you the first time about a year and a half after that we were talking about, you know, 2017. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and this brings it all to a head. We... The problem I was trying to solve was a discovery problem. How do you recruit talent? And uh, Matt, I know you're doing some cool things around similar problem sets, uh, uh, recruiting talent and, you know, aligning the right people with the right teams at the right time, right? And there's a bit of a science to that. But in the music industry, the top 1% of the people make 70% of all the money. And at the same time, 40 to 50% of that money never makes it to some of the rights holders that need it most. And we realized we had to solve that problem first. Nothing else we did at the bottom of the pyramid was really going to have impact until we finished the inefficiencies of the marketplace, how, how the money moved. That's a, such a cool opportunity and sort of genesis story. Um, and I know you've iterated a lot on the product since then. Yeah. And you've kind of, it seems like you've really captured some magic in how you go about building products and, and probably because of the different kinds of products, all the different experiences of different kinds of products that you've built from your shopping cart airplane to your, <laughs> to your girl band. Uh, what is it about, what is it about sort of that uh, culture, that product culture that you've created that yeah. you think is maybe a secret ingredient that, 
that other people could potentially cultivate on their own teams? I think it's about taking fear out of the environment. Um, there's this company called IDEO, which, yeah, they're a phenomenal, you've heard of them, right? Oh, yeah. Now, they're a phenomenal design think tank, and they've, they've evolved over the years, but one of the famous stories is that when the computer mouse first came out, it was you know really expensive uh, to build. And uh, Steve Jobs approached IDEO, hey, I need a better mouse. I need it for nine bucks. And I don't know what the exact number it was, but it was a little like that. Yeah. And uh, the founder, uh, the designers, were inspired by roll-on deodorant for how the ball, the trackball moved across an X and Y axis. And that became the inspiration for those less expensive mice. The first ones are actually laser mice that uh, Xerox developed. Um, IDEO's done a lot of innovations like that. And they, they like they cultivated an out-of-box thinking environment mm-hmm. by removing a lot of the ego and pretension that is easy to, it creeps into design very easily. Mm. <clears throat> how do you, how do you um, address that when that does come up in the culture? When that ego flares up, when that... Uh... We call it out of jamber. You know, I think top down... One of the reasons, and I, I chose my co-founders in the same way, they know they're good at what they do. Uh, they don't have to lord that over anyone else. We're here to serve, and uh, we're here to make a positive impact in people's lives. And while we all have an ego, we have a little, uh, we all have uh, PTSD from high school, so to speak, right? <laughs> um, it it shouldn't get in the way of, of what's best, you know? And when everyone realizes we're all here for the same purpose and we're here to serve, we remind people that, and the egos kind of realign. Um, yeah. But you have to do it at the top. And I never throw titles around or any, if I have to do that, then there's something broken in the culture. Um, so we, it's a, it's a delicate balance. It's everything right now we're going through a bit of a hiring burst. So every time we go through a new hiring phase, it's harder and harder to maintain that standards because all of us have baggage and all of us, there are plenty of cultures out there where it's kind of dog eat dog. And there might even be cultures where that's necessary. Um, but at Jamber, it, it, if you're afraid of um, a, announcing a better idea because it's your first day in the job, then we all lose. Yeah. Um, so how do we create a culture where we pull those ideas out of you the moment you started our company? And I won't say we've arrived, but I do think culture is, is the most important part of design. Um, how people feel, because design is about feelings. It's about emotions. And that's all we know as human beings are experiencing the world through these five plus senses. We're experiential beings. And so design is evoking emotion on some level all the time. And if you're not aware, if, if you're designing from a uh, toxic or limited place, that will come through uh, in, in, in what you produce as a product. <clears throat> and if you're designing from a place of servitude and high regard, that will also come through because software is a good example. I'll end it with this. Software always has a tendency to go back to zeros and ones. It is binary by nature. Um, but people were analog. Right. So if you let your tech team often drive product, they're going to do what the hardware wants them to do. They're going to do what the the tools want them to do. They're going to stay in those boxes. And you have to work from the human experience backwards uh, to to resist that gravity and make software do uh, what it's supposed to do, which is enrich people's lives. I love that, man. 
I love that. I appreciate you pulling back the curtain a little bit about some of the, the magic that's giving you guys all that traction at Jamber. What, uh, just before we uh, close here, I would love to hear a little bit more about where you're at with Jamber right now, what some of your big opportunities are, and, and you know, maybe if, if some talent is listening here, where they can go to check out jobs. Well, yeah, I was, I was kind of I, I accidentally talking over you there. I, I, I left out the most important part, which is hiring really amazing people. <laughs> so uh, I have some pretty awesome designers uh, on my team. Nice. And we, it's, 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 we all hear people say this all the time, you know, hire people better than you or smarter than you. Uh, we actually do it at Jamber, and it's, we know we're doing it when our insecurities are come out a little bit and we don't want to hire that person. That's the person we hire. <laughs> uh, so how, how do you recruit and find those people? I still believe that A's attract A's and B's attract C's. Um, I don't mind telling people that I'm one of the best at what I do. Um, and I've honed my skills over time. And if they, if they research my background, they'll, they'll hear that reputation. I've worked really hard and I'm really good at what I do from a tech delivery standpoint and product delivery standpoint. I'm good at monetizing products. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I'm not that great at certain graphics and I'm not that great at certain operation aspects. And, and uh, so I'm really looking for someone who's better. I'm, if I'm top tier, let's say I'm top 4%, I'm really looking for someone that's top 2% because I want to win. Um, and I'm not going to lose because we brought the wrong people on board. And I've done that. I've hired many wrong people that just weren't good culture fits or just weren't good people for that matter. Um, so that's the most important part, which is where Jammer's at now. And, and how do you hire at scale when unemployment is under four, under 3%, and then unemployment in IT is under one in certain markets, right? How, how do you yeah. hire at scale? Well, you recruit, you recruit on culture and mission. Um, there are people that would love Jamber has a legitimate chance to change the world. It's not hyperbole. Mm. Absolutely. Um, music is the history of the world. Uh, you've heard me say that before. And uh, if we can set that free because of the power of technology and design, what a cool thing to tell your kids that I was a part of the, the next wave of music, bigger than Spotify, bigger than all the labels um, that millions and millions of artists lives were changed because we showed up and, and, and got to work um that's that's pretty compelling for me anyway and i think i think it would be for other people too i love that i love the culture first mission first approach to recruiting talent um if, if someone listening is interested in jamber and wants to follow to see if there's a job for them where should they go well, if you want to find us that bad, it's not that hard. <laughs> you know, how bad do you want it? Uh, um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, um, <clears throat> obviously, our socials are out there at jambermusic.com, J-A-M-M-B-E-R, uh, music, or um, handles, rather, and then uh, jamber.com. We're pretty easy to find. I'm easy to find them on LinkedIn, too, or at Jamper CEO. Uh, but, yeah, we're, we're always looking for amazing people and even other entrepreneurs out there if you guys want to just uh, have – that sounding board that I know I need to, and we can all talk. Uh, Matt and I had a good conversation before this podcast, just kind of catching up. So uh, we're here, here to serve. Hey, Marcus, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. And uh, I'm super excited because I know you're going to be speaking at 3686 this year, which is yeah. basically like the South by Southwest of the Southeast, uh, <laughs> August 28th yes. and 29th this yeah. year in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Wow. I unfortunately cannot make it to uh, be there this year, but wanted to give Launch Tennessee a huge shout out for putting that on. Yeah. Um, that, that 3686 conference is incredible. 
And uh, I know you're going to rock the stage there, man. Yeah, thanks so much for the love and the shout out. I appreciate that. Uh, and I'll never for, you know, forgive me. You surprised me uh, with the article you wrote about Jamber uh, those couple years ago. You have no idea how much momentum that put into ourselves. So I love what you're doing for entrepreneurs, man. And, and uh, we've definitely been a recipient of that, Grace. So keep it up. I appreciate that, man. That means a lot to me. Uh, thanks for continuing to be a part of the community. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Also, huge thank you to Marcus Cobb. Make sure you reach out to Marcus and check out jamber.com. You can find links to his social profiles as well as the other people, companies, and resources mentioned in this episode over at powderkeg.com. Make sure you give us a subscribe also while you're there on iTunes. You don't want to miss any of these other upcoming guests. We've got some great ones lined up here. Uh, And to do that, you can go to powderkeg.com slash iTunes. That's P-O-W-D-E-R-K-E-G.com slash iTunes. If you left us a review while you were there, I would be forever grateful. Uh, And thank you if you've already done that. Thank you so, so much. Those reviews mean everything. They help us reach more people with the awesome stories um, about the entrepreneurs and investors and tech workers that you hear about here on the podcast. Um, And we're really grateful to help be a part of spreading the word. So thank you for that. Thanks for being a part of this community. And we'll catch you next time on the Powder Keg Podcast. 